Welcome to Disciple City Church Podcast. My name is Jerry Wagner, founder and lead pastor of Disciple City Church in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for tuning in. Our desire is to unleash a family of healthy disciple makers in Dallas to reach the world. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can listen to new messages each week. Thank you and have a God-filled day. Well, if you are a member here, you notice something different in that I read the passage. Oftentimes, someone from our family comes and read the passage. But I wanted to make sure that the passage that was being read had a level of importance and heaviness so that when it is communicated, you can, like, bear the weight. And as a shepherd, I wanted to heed to the words that Jesus said to Peter 2,000 years ago when he said, feed my sheep. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to read the scripture today because I realized the heaviness of this passage. And so today I want to teach, I want to be a little didactic with a sprinkle of preaching But I want you to move from this place understanding exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage. Today's topic is a heavy one. In fact, this topic has more tentacles than an octopus. This topic is about marriage, about divorce, about remarriage, and discipleship. Notice I said discipleship. Because if we don't understand that this passage is hitched to discipleship, then we will read into the passage things that is not communicating. Everything that we have been teaching up till now has been about what? Discipleship. So all of a sudden, it seems that this passage comes out of nowhere only because you are simply just thinking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage as opposed to it being connected to discipleship. Remember, the task, our mantra is disciples in the know, disciples on the go, and disciples are faithful. All throughout this series, we have been talking about what does it mean to follow Jesus. In fact, The first thing that Jesus said in chapter 1 of Mark is the kingdom is at hand. And all those who hear this message are called to repent and believe in the gospel. And as soon as he begins to proclaim this gospel message, the next word we hear is follow me. And when he says follow me, he's telling people to leave everything to follow him. Not only is he telling them to leave everything to follow him, but the next words we have heard in these last couple of sermons as he is on the go is, whoever wishes to follow me, whoever desires to follow me, the first thing he must do is accept the mission of suffering. Stay with me because I'm building this context up so that you understand what Mark is saying about marriage and divorce and remarriage. 
He says, if anyone desires to follow Jesus, you must accept the mission of suffering. Last week, Waldo talked about not only do you need to accept the mission of suffering, but you also need to accept the mission of humility. And remember when he got all the way down with his knees? My knees started hurting when I saw that. I wasn't even doing it. Up until now, that's all Jesus has been talking about is what it means to follow me. And this demand of following Jesus is radical, right? This ain't something that is just trivial. This is not something that you just wake up one day and I'm like, man, I feel like following Jesus. No, this thing is radical. Now watch this. It's one thing to make a decision when it's just you. You know? For all my brothers and sisters who all you got to do is wake up, comb your hair, brush your teeth, and you out the door. It's another thing to make a decision when you have a responsibility of a spouse or children. See, all throughout Mark, when he's um, demanding us to follow him, it has this single-person mentality. But what do I do when I'm married? How do I follow Jesus when I have a spouse and children? In fact, remember in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus said, they said to Jesus, hey, your family outside. And Jesus was like, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? In other words, Jesus was like, I don't know those cats. That's not what he was saying, right? That's not what he was saying. But all of a sudden, it feels like Jesus is dissing his own family. And then Jesus says, whoever does the will of my father, they are my family. And the question arises when you read this passage, does that apply to spouses? Like, can you just leave your spouse if they're not doing the will of God? Can you just bounce when when they're not acting right? I know what some of y'all are thinking. Right? And so this passage is in the context of discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus as a married couple. Secondly, I said that it has more tentacles than an octopus. What do I mean by that? Well, here's a couple of things. First, when you read a passage like this, one of the tentacles that is attached to this passage is the tentacles of divorce. Some of you all have experienced the pain of divorce. Whether it's personally, you have went through it. Maybe your parents have been divorced. Or maybe someone that you love have been divorced. And the mere mention of the word divorce brings pain, sorrow, disappointment, anger, or even guilt. And so when this passage is read, maybe some of you all have begun to question, did I disobey God when I got divorced? Am I a failure because my marriage failed? Is it right for me to remarry? Am I living in sin? Did I cause my parent or loved one to divorce? Some of those questions will be answered in this passage, but some of them will not be. Because the context is, divorce, 
and discipleship. Married hits to discipleship. And so for some of you, if you feel that pain, if you feel that shame, and your, your questions are not answered, please follow up with me. Let's sit down and begin to parse what the entire Bible says about this. But if you would just allow me to be narrow in focus on what Mark is doing, then I guarantee you, you will see how Jesus is elevating what biblical marriage is and elevating what it means to be in a relationship or a marriage when someone has a hard heart. All right. Here's another tentacle. Promise. Some of you all have made a vow. Some of you all are married right now, and you are in a marriage that you don't particularly want to be in. Right? <laughs> hey, see, if you can't say amen, say ouch, right? You know. <laughs> like some of you all are in a marriage, and you be, have begun to even think about. Man, if life would simply be easier if I would just leave. If I would just leave. If I would just be disconnected from this person. You have even begun to ponder the thought, is this marriage even worth fighting for? That might be a question that's brewing in your heart. And then there is the prospect tentacle. This is for those who have a desire to be married, but when they look at the prospects in the world, they'll be like, no, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> Bruh, nope, no, I can't do it. <laughs> like, you have a desire to be married, but when you look, whether digitally or physically, even at DCC, you look around like, ain't no dudes here, ain't no, ain't no dudes here. Man, I'm, I'm about to go somewhere else and find somebody. <laughs> now, let me be honest in this category, because for some of you all, it is a prospect issue. But for others, it's a perspective issue. Because some of the great men and great women who are in your circle, you look at them and be like, man, they, they check up all the box, but I think I'm, I'm selling myself short. Because you think skin and beauty is what is the attraction. But I guarantee you, 20 years from now, all their hair going to be gone, their stomach going to be leaning over their jeans, and you're going to be like, man, what did I do? What did I do? What did I do? Because you put it on temporary values as opposed to kingdom values. So I don't want you to get away with just thinking it's a prospect issue, but it's real. In fact, I read an article. And this article talked about 67% of black women are least likely to be married because of the color of their skin. 67%. Sixty-seven. 
And that hits home for a father who has daughters who are black. And every day I have to remind them that they have been created in the image of God. But culture is constantly saying, uh-oh, I can't marry that black woman because she, she sassy, she talk like this. She, I'm like, what? Have you been around other cultures? It ain't your skin tone that makes you sassy. Right? But then there's this tentacle a prerogative. This is those who don't have a desire to be married. They are very comfortable in their singleness. And yet, culture, other people, and even the church has pressured them into thinking that singleness is a sin. that you're not complete unless you have somebody next to you. And to the single brothers and sisters, I would simply say that is wrong. And I'm sorry on behalf of the church that we have made you feel that way. Because if that was the case, Jesus Christ himself was single. I like what Thomas Wilcox said. He says, the church creates unnecessary tension between singleness and married folks. In fact, he says, we have made this duality. Either be single for God or married for yourself. That doesn't make sense. We are called to be married for God and we are called to be single for God. Whether you are in a season where you have a, a spouse and children or in a season where it is just you, the mission remains the same. All right? It remains the same. Our devotions may look different, not from the standpoint of our devotion before Jesus, but for our devotion before the people we are responsible for. Single people, you are responsible for the community that you are connected to. You are not just allowed to run out here willy-nilly thinking you can do whatever you want. No, you have a community that you connected to. That's why, that's why when people bring me their potential spouses, the first question I want to know is, what community are they connected to? Who knows them? Who holds them accountable? Because we are a family. And so when you read this passage, if you're feeling any of those emotions, I'm telling you to make sure it's connected to discipleship. But I need to be honest. All these tentacles have created a question in the culture in the church. And that question is simply this. Is marriage relevant? Is it important? Like all these experiences that I just mentioned has created this question among both the culture and dare I say even the church is asking, is marriage even important? Is it even relevant for my life? For the life of a society that is thriving? This question was so heavy that there was a Gallup report in 2020 
and it found a growing number of Americans believe that the institution of marriage is very important or is not very important for couples who plan to spend their lives together or who have children together. Can I share some of the statistics that they found? The research released in late 2020 found 29% of people say it's very important for couples with children to be legally married, but that is down from 49% in 2006. And 38% of Americans say it's very important for couples to marry if they plan to live together the rest of their lives. That is down 54% since 2006. Now, if that was just the world, I'm like, I get it. I'm like, yeah, I get it. You know, if you can get the milk without the cow, then why get married? Right? If you can have all the benefits of a covenant relationship without the commitment, that's cool. But it's not just in the world. Here's what the church church goers, and I'm going to believe that some of these church girls are also disciples. More surprisingly, church goers' view on marriage are also changing. In 2006, 65% of weekly church attendees said it is very important that a couple with children to, um, uh, uh, very important that couples with children um, legally get married. They, that share fell to 45% in 2020. Currently, 67% of weekly churchgoers say marriage is very important for couples who want to spend their lives together, but that is down from 82% in 2006. One of the reasons why this thing is down is because you don't hear sermons like this preached. And then when we do preach it, we throw so many disclaimers out that it's so watered down that it don't hit you anyway. Like, man, that don't apply to me. So what does this mean? If this is what is happening in the world, if this is what is happening in the church, right, then the question that we must ask and answer today as followers of Jesus as disciples, what does it mean to follow Jesus as a married couple? What does it mean to follow Jesus as a married couple? And let me throw this out here because I ain't going to bring this up no more. Uh, one thing it doesn't mean is getting married does not disrupt the mission of Jesus, which should be an encouragement to those who have decided to be single because your season of singleness should not disrupt the mission of Jesus. But what does the text say? What does it mean to follow Jesus as a married couple? And I want to give you three perspectives, what the world says, what God says, and what the mandate is for the disciple. Three perspectives, follow me. What does the world mean in regards to marriage? What does God say in regards to marriage? And what is the mandate of a disciple in regards to marriage? Are y'all ready to jump into this? This one goes sting just a little bit. 
just a little bit, the world. The world's perspective on marriage is simply this. Marriage is expendable. Marriage is expendable. In other words, it is insignificant in comparison to what makes me happy, safe, more fulfilled, and less bothered. And less bothered. The world's view of marriage is that it is expendable. Therefore, making marriage an institution that can be abandoned at any whim or any cause. Hold on to that truth because I'm going to come back to it. This was true in the culture in biblical days, but it's also true in the culture today that marriage is expendable. Let's go back to the text. Mark chapter 10, looking at verses 1 through 5. When you enter into that body of passage, the thing that I like is that Jesus is on a go again. Right? But he's in a region, he's in a region that is going to open up an opportunity for the Pharisees to attack him. Hold on to that truth because I'm going to come back to that again. So in verse 2, the Pharisees questioned Jesus, and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Notice, they asked, if a man. They didn't say, if a woman or a wife. And the reason why they didn't say woman or wife, because according to their interpretation, the Pharisees believed that the Old Testament only permitted Jewish men to divorce their wives and to be married. So right out of the gate, the culture's perspective on marriage is one-sided. The Jewish women could not divorce their husband under Jewish law no matter what's going on in the relationship. Jesus is about to shatter this. See, oftentimes when we talk about the, the Bible be anti-woman rights or anti-woman, just look at what Jesus says. Just look at what Paul says. Because Jesus is about to shatter this injustice that the only person that can get divorced is a man. But the second thing that you see in this text is that they're not asking this question from a pure heart. Right? They're not asking this question from the pure heart. In fact, remember I said underline this, the text says they came to test him. This is the same word that was used when Jesus was being sent in the wilderness to be tested by Satan. They came to test him. In other words... They did not come for information about divorce. They came to entrap him. They came to set up a, a diversion so that they might get Jesus to say something that is inconsistent with the culture. There are three entrapments here that we see in the text. And the first entrapment we see is what I would call the Herod trap. The Herod 
trap. Remember when I said that Jesus is traveling in a place, Judah, uh, Judea, and across the Jordan River? Well, Herod Antipas is the ruler of that territory. The reason why that's important for you to know is because Herod Antipas beheaded John the Baptist in Mark chapter 6. Why? Because John the Baptist said to Herod, it is unlawful for you to marry your brother's wife. Because Herod divorced his wife and married his brother's wife, Herodias, and she divorced her husband and hooked up with Herod. John, like, bro, that's nasty. <laughs> he said, I, that's just nasty, bro. We, we, we don't do that. That is unlawful. But the problem was when he did this, it created Herod as an enemy. Now, he was afraid of John because the crowd was supporting John. But then one day, they having a birthday party. And Herod's daughter-in-law, she dancing. If you read the text, she ain't just dancing. She dancing. Aroused all the men that was there. And he says, what do you want? She goes to talk to her mother. What, what, what should I ask him? What should I ask? And you cannot make a covenant and a promise in a Jewish culture without adhering to that oath. She said, tell him I want John the Baptist's head. What are the Pharisees doing? See, they hoped that Jesus would give them an answer about divorce so that he might use his strict teaching and the report will go back to Herod so that Herod will cause his death. I mean, the Pharisees are working. In fact, all you got to do is go to Mark chapter 3, verse 6. They have been colluding with the Herodians for quite some time. That's the first trap. Here's the second trap, the cultural trap. This trap is designed to discredit Jesus among the crowd. It is to get the pressure of public opinion so that the crowd will turn their back on Jesus. And let me break this one down because you need, this is important. There are two schools of thoughts in the culture on divorce. The first school of thought is adultery only. In other words, you can get a divorce if your spouse, just a woman, commits adultery. Now, that doesn't really make sense. Because in a Jewish culture, Old Testament culture, if you commit adultery, you get stoned. So even there, there's some shifting in the interpretation of the scripture. But that's one school of thought. The second school of thought is not adultery only, but any cause grounds. In other words, you can get a divorce for any reason you want to any reason you want to. What do you think this culture's predominantly school of thought was? Any cause. Any cause to get divorced. Any cause. And it's funny because I began to research what were some of the causes 
that were grounds for divorce. Some of y'all go get upset, but this is the culture, right? One grounds for divorce is if a wife burns your food. If she cooked a bad meal, that was grounds for divorce. Another grounds for the divorce is if she does not follow your directions. Look at some of the wives looking at the hums and be like, what? Huh? Say something right now. Sue, I tell Pastor Jerry right now, we'll tear this whole place up. No, don't do that. Don't do that. All right? I done ate some, okay. The second thing was if she does not follow your directions, dictatorship. The third thing is, if she does not please you with her behavior. Here's the last one. If you find someone else that you prefer over her. Any case. See, this is what Jesus is dealing with. Jesus is not answering a question of divorce. If you come to this text thinking this is the, the, the exhaustive truth about divorce, that's not what he's battling right now. What he's battling is this injustice that people think that you can do whatever you want when you make this vow before God and say, nah, man, the food wasn't good, her attitude is jacked up, she ain't following my direction, and I just see somebody prettier. Now, before you turn your nose up at the Pharisees. Before you turn your nose at this Jewish culture, isn't that a reflection of our own culture? Isn't that what we do here? All you got to do is go online and look up grounds for divorce in Texas. There are seven grounds of divorce in Texas. And of those seven, Two of them are no-fault clauses. Let me say it a different way. Irreconcilable differences. We have a lot of irreconcilable disciples around here when it comes to marriage. So before we get on our horse and be like, nah, we're doing the same exact thing. Here's the third track. It's the mosaic trap. The mosaic trap is designed to pit Jesus against the scripture. To pit Jesus against what Moses, which is town them out to scripture, to pit them two against one another. In other words, they want Jesus to contradict the mosaic law. But notice what Jesus does. It is Jesus who says in verse 3, what did Moses command? The reason why that's important for us to know is Jesus is pointing them back to the scripture. See, anytime you are in a debate or somebody is challenging your theology, tell them, show me what the Bible says about it. Jesus says, what did Moses say? What is written in the scripture? They said, Moses permitted, now hold on to that word, permitted, but not approved, not condoned. Moses permitted us to write 
divorce papers and to send her away. Now, once again, they crafty with how they use scripture. What they have just quoted is a redacted version of Deuteronomy 24. Because in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, listen to this and see if you catch the omission. In Deuteronomy 24, 1, it says, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because causal for this reason, he finds something indecent about her he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Did you catch the omission? It's convenient that they will omit because he finds something indecent. The word indecent here comes from the Hebrew word which means nakedness. Some sexual impropriety. Some, some, some lewd thing that has caused her to defile herself. But that's not what they're emphasizing. They're not emphasizing sin. They are emphasizing their right to divorce with no boundaries and no guidelines. With no boundaries and no guidelines. Jesus is not dealing with the exception, but he is dealing with the expendable mindset that marriage is insignificant. This isn't about whether someone is in a, a marriage where um, there's neglect, domestic harm, abandonment. That's not what Jesus is dealing with. Nor is he negating that reality because the reality is Moses wrote a divorce certificate because of the sin and imperfection in the world. One of the hardest things about being married is two imperfect people trying to make it work. My wife said, man, if I'd have known this before we got married, I'm like, well, baby, you know. You know, but no, I can't say that to her. That's a fight. That's a fight. I'm like, well, I knew, you know. Mm -mm. I just go outside, start cutting the grass. Just <laughs> mad as heck. Like, oh, really? Okay, okay. <laughs> Don't tell her. Is she here yet? All right, I'll see her. I'll see her. She ain't here yet. All right. She ain't gonna watch the recording. All right. Jesus is not dealing with the exception, but the expendable mindset of marriage being insignificant. How do we know this? How do we know that's what Jesus is dealing with? Well, he tells us in verse 5. He says, but Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you. Why? Because of your hardness of your heart. He says, you are not divorcing your wives because of sin. You are divorcing them because of your unbelieving heart. Yes, I said unbelieving. 
And the reason why I say unbelieving is because the Greek word is the same Hebrew word that is used when he says uncircumcised heart. Right? In other words, this is not a faith issue or a divorce issue. This is a faith issue. That these people are not willing to adhere to the word of God. They're not willing to adhere to the vow of God. This has nothing to do with divorce. This has everything to do with a lack of faith. Unbelieving faith. Comparable to a Gentile faith who is not a part of the commonwealth of Israel. Let me make this relevant today. We do not have a divorce issue in the church. We have a devotion issue in the church. A devotion to God. That's the issue we have in the church. Right? This ain't about divorce. This is about our adherence to our reverence to the God who made divorce. Hold on to that because I'm coming back to that. Jesus says the world and even the church has made marriage expendable because of your lack of devotion to God. Jesus says this is not how God's designed marriage. Jesus said this is not how God designed marriage. In fact, (laughs) marriage in the kingdom of God is entangled. Now, before you go to the Will Smith, Jada Smith thing, I used it for impact because I knew that's entangled. What what are we doing in here? What are we doing? Hear me out. Hear me out. The word entangled means something or someone twisted together. In biblical vernacular, that means someone who is glued together, who is cleaved together. That means if you were to tear them apart, it will rip right? Marriage in the kingdom of God is permanent. That's why Jesus says in verse 9, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Like, divorce is hard, man. Divorce is the worst type of pain. It's one thing if you lose your spouse. That's hard, right? Because you can, you, you can hold on to seeing them again, but divorce is a dirty type of pain. Every smell, every, every memory, and if you got children, you got to see this. Like Jesus said, divorce is that type of pain that when you separate it, things tear. Things break. God says, Marriage is entangled. Marriage is permanent. What God has put together, let no man separate. Jesus begins to contrast the views of the culture and the views of the kingdom. And he begins to say in verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. The word beginning here speaks of origin. The word creation here speaks of existence. God is the architect of marriage. In other words, Jesus says, I don't want to hear about your rabbinical customs. I don't want to hear about your redacted scriptures. I want you to go all the way back to the beginning, to the God who created the institution of marriage. He says, don't talk to me about the custom. You don't know how to interpret the scripture. What did God say? 
This is what we call in biblical terms the principle of first mention. Some of you have heard it say the law of first mention. The principle of first mention is to find where a word or doctrine have been said first because it gives you the clearest definition of the thing that you are searching for. Jesus says, I'm going to use the, the, the principle of first mention on these dudes. He says, go all the way back to Genesis, where this was first mentioned. And so Jesus goes all the way back to the first book in the Bible, Genesis. And he quotes two passages, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Let's deal with the first one. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. The reason why I had to read this twice, Drew, is because the second time that I read this passage, I saw the implication. And the implication from the beginning suggests that it implies that there has been no alterations to the truth of this passage. It was not altered in the beginning. It is not altered in Jesus' time. Now watch this. And it is not altered in our time right now. <laughs> right? The same truth that was held in the beginning, Jesus says, that applies right now. In fact, the Bible, the canon is closed. There's no more scriptures being added to this, right? And because there's no more scriptures being added to it, what Jesus has said is final. It's final. From the beginning, this has been the reality of marriage. Oh, come on, man. I, oh, man, I'm cooking up here, bro. What is true about marriage in the beginning is true about marriage today. So what is the truth then? What is Jesus communicating about marriage in this reality? And I want to list a couple of things. The first thing that he is um, communicating is marriage is designed by God. Right? God is the architect. He is the subject. He is the one who has built it. And watch this. If God is the architect, what gives us the right to redefine what Jesus created? If he's the architect, we have some artists in here. If I were to ask some of these artists in here that, hey, man, can I alter your art? Can I alter your paint? Can I alter your graphic? Man, they look at you like, what? No, that's mine. Put my name on that. Jesus says, God put his name on marriage. Don't touch what I created. Don't touch what I designed. Because every time we do, we try to remake what God has created, we mess it up. Tammy, I would never try to alter your art, bro. Never. It's good all by itself. I would never mess with our tarot stuff. It's good already. Why do we keep trying to redefine what Jesus has already defined? Here's the second thing about marriage. Marriage is between a man and a woman. I know we don't want to hear that, but watch this. If you feel like you don't want to hear that, aren't you doing the same thing that the Pharisees did? See, if I were to say that women were excluded, if I were to say that women's right was put on the back burner, 
you are doing the same thing when you hear God say his marriage is between a man and a woman. You're like, no. That's what the Pharisees did. Marriage is between a man and a woman. It's monogamous. The architect said, this is how it's designed. This is how we complement one another. Let me keep digging. Jesus continues to explain God's view on marriage in verses 7 and 8. Listen to what he says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. This is the hardest thing about marriage. <laughs> one flesh? One flesh? Here's what the text is communicating. Oneness in marriage refers to two wholes, lives uniting together as one emotionally, sexually, intellectually, financially, spiritually, and in every way. In fact, I love this part. And they have a common purpose, a united purpose that is one. It's what marriage is. And the reason why it's hard is because we are constantly having hard hearts going in this direction and this direction as opposed to coming together as one. Jesus says marriage is one flesh. Marriage is also commitment. He says this is the reason why you leave your mama and your daddy. You're no longer under their authority. You're no longer under their government. You are committing yourself to each other. That's why when Jesus says, who is my mother and who is my brother and who is my, he ain't talking about spouses. I remember somebody asked me if your wife was at the car and your mother was at the car, who sits in the front seat? I said, I'm going to let my wife drive and my mother-in-law sit in the, um, the uh, that's, that's, that's the <laughs> what you trying to do? Don't be trying to entrap me, bro. I'm quick on my feet, bro. Don't be trying to get me. Trying to get me up in this place. <laughs> my, my clapback is real. My clapback is real. But the biblical reality is my wife. My wife, she is the one. She is the one that I made a commitment to. She is the one that I'm a part of this one flesh. And lastly, marriage is permanent. What God has put together, let no man separate. So what does all this mean for a disciple? What does all this mean for a couple who are under the jurisdiction of Jesus. What does it mean to follow? And here's the truth. A married couple, their design is to make disciples and rule together. Make disciples and rule together. This is what we are called to do under the one flesh banner. Make disciples and rule together. Now, I want to show you this from the principle of first mention. I don't want to use the New Testament to show you this. 
I want to go all the way back to the beginning so I can show you making disciples and ruling together is the mission of a married couple. Here's the first thing. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. It says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Right? He says the first mission of a married couple is multiplication. Right? What is multiplication in the New Testament? Discipleship. He says, I want you to make disciples in the bedroom and on the corner. I want you to make physical disciples and spiritual disciples. That's why you can be single and still continue the mandate of Jesus because the mission is multiplication. <laughs> right? It's multiplication. This ain't addition. This multiplying. Why you think I got five kids? So I can make more disciples. We still talking about some more. Like, you know what, man? I feel like making a disciple today, man. I feel like, I feel like making a disciple today. You feel like making a disciple today? Okay. We'll talk about it. Let's go pray about it. Let's go pray about it. Let's go practice. Let's go practice. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> a married couple's responsibility is to multiply, to make disciples. This was the truth of the beginning. So when you get to Matthew 28 and he says, go, therefore, and all the earth, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Spirit, and, or name of the uh, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's Genesis. All Jesus has done is expanded the image of God going across the earth in this broken world. What is married couples supposed to do? Make disciples. Here's the second thing. They are supposed to rule together. Going back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. He says, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Married couples understand that we rule together. We name together. We hunt together. You know, we cultivate together. We build together. The idea of ruling is that you both have dominion. The ideal of ruling means you both have power. The ideal of ruling means that God has put you in a position that you reign over the things that he has entrusted to you. If you are married, you have dominion together. You rule together. You have power together. Now, if all this is true, why aren't we seeing this in the church? And two reasons we don't see it. One is because a man don't think he, a husband doesn't think he needs his wife. And a wife doesn't understand her worth in building out and cultivating the land. Pastor, where do you get that from? Let's go back to Genesis. 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him. A discipled husband knows he needs his wife. He knows that he cannot build without her help. He knows that whatever he touches, if her imprint is not on it, God ain't going to bless it. This is the only thing that God said was not good, that this man was alone trying to cultivate his kingdom on earth. He said, brother, you need some help. How is it that the animal kingdom gets it right, but the church get it wrong on this? Dogs and cats and bats and rats and squirrels, they all get it right. But husbands think, man, I got this. I can build this by myself. You die at 40 because you're tired. <laughs> Your hands all messed up. God said, dummy, I didn't gave you help. But also, the wife, he says, I will make you a helper corresponding to you. See, this is where wives fall off. Because they think that their role is insignificant. The word helper here comes from a Hebrew word, ezer. The word ezer means warrior. Wife, you ain't there to sit and look pretty. You on the front line like, who we going to get, bruh? Who we going to tear up, bruh? What's going on? I'm ready to. Like, you are a warrior helper. You speak things into life. You birth things into life. You have the gift. Come on, man. You have the, you have the gift to bring change to things. I ain't dealing with you. I ain't dealing with you. <laughs> you are Ezer. You are the warrior helper. You bring things to life. And I need to confess something on this right here. When I planted this church, I didn't do good at this. And every time I think about it, I get emotional. Planning Disciple City Church was hard, y'all. It was hard. I ran into stuff that I'm like, my goodness. And one of the things that I did in planning this church when it got real hard is I ostracized my wife. Because I didn't want her to go through the pain that I was going through. And I thought I was being a hero and what I did is I turned into a villain. And I hurt her bad. And I'm thinking I'm justifying. I got this. You don't need to go through this. And God is saying all along, but your warrior is right here. I'm trying to disciple other people to come and help me. They leaving, but my warrior is right here. 
I'm trying to raise up and build up and teach people. I'm meeting in coffee shops. I'm teaching theology. And I'm telling her, no, baby, I don't want you to have to go through this. I got this. And I end up hurting her so bad. And I remember, I think it was uh, third year in the church. And then she, she just broke. And for the first time, I heard her. And I was like, my bad, sweetie. And I took up this posture, and I looked at her, and I said, sweetie, I am not your hero, and I am not your savior. I'm your husband. And we will do this thing together. And ever since, we've been thriving. And ever since, we've been rocking. And I remember her saying, because I was going to have, when I was thinking about this sermon, I was like, baby, what if we tell people about kind of the history or whatever? And she, I said, how do we get to this place of thriving? And you know what she said? And I, I didn't expect her to say this, and I wish she was here and she can co-sign it. She said to me, she says, I think the way, the, the, the reason we are in this pace of flourishing is because she says, I got out of your way. Got out of your way. She says, and I begin to understand that my worth is this. I don't have to carry all these burdens by myself. We can do this together. I was like, let's go make a disciple. 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 As the prayer team came forward, I'm serious. If you felt, if you done been through all these pains and things of that nature, we can have a conversation. But this text is talking about discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus as a married couple. And what it means is that we continue to make disciples. We continue to rule together. Right? We continue to have a heart that is soft and tender. We continue to recognize that we need one another and we rule together. Right? And so, man, if that is you and you like, look, man, my, I'm, I'm struggling through my marriage. I'm, uh, I'm kind of navigating through singleness. And let us pray with you. And if you need more conversation and things of that nature, let us talk. But when you come to this passage, I hope you walk away understanding you don't lose anything when you get married. Nor do you gain anything when you are just single. That God wants both married disciple makers and single disciple makers to advance the kingdom of God until Jesus returns. Let us worship our God as we contemplate. Thank you again for listening to the Disciple City Church podcast. Until we meet again, Shalom.